morning. Turn with me, please, to Luke chapter number 13. So we'll look at it in just a moment. Luke chapter number 13. We'll start. chapter 13, we'll start in just a moment, verse number 5. I am so thankful that I get to have the privilege, the great opportunity of sharing with you the precious powerful truth of the Word of God this morning. How many believe that God's Word is life-changing? How many believe that the Word of God is alive? <laughs> the Bible says it's quick and it's powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And what that word quick actually means there in the book of Hebrews is that the Word of God is a living Word. So again, this is not just uh, something that God has said, but something God is saying to all who have ears to hear today. And, uh, and we'll look at what Jesus said there in Luke 13 in just a moment. Now, what I'm going to share with you this morning is a parable of the Lord Jesus. And all of us know what a parable is, or at least I'm sure most of us do. A parable is an earthly story with a, with a heavenly meaning. It's an illustration used by the Lord so that he might impart to the hearer some deep spiritual truth. Now, how many of you believe this morning that Jesus is the greatest preacher that ever lived? No doubt about that. If you don't believe me, just go read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he gives you here what, what you really have there is the living word, God incarnate in the flesh, preaching what we now have as the written word. Powerful, powerful truth. Given by the Lord Jesus Christ. The preaching of Jesus has absolutely changed the world and eternity forever. So he's the greatest preacher that the world has ever known. But how do you also believe he's the greatest teacher the world's ever known? And, and he proves that. And there's great evidence for that in all of the parables that he teaches. He gives us these illustrations again to impart some deep spiritual truth. So that we can get a hold of the truth that changes our lives. Many times he had to give it in a way that we could receive it. And that's what he does through parables. And that's what a great teacher will always do. So Jesus speaks a parable here in Luke chapter 13, just one of many. Now you need to understand that a parable is just that. It's an illustration. We should not base our theology simply on parables. You can't completely and totally compare parables to everything. What Jesus is doing is illustrating a specific point. Can you say amen? It's not an allegory. You can't completely compare every part to... Because uh, if we do that, we can actually make parables say what we want them to say instead of what God is trying to teach. And so, Jesus here gives us this parable, this illustration, to share with us a very powerful truth. Now, I, I must confess to you this morning... The outline that I'm about to preach to you is not original with me. Matter of fact, Dr. John MacArthur, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Dr. John MacArthur, but about a week ago, he preached this message, and it was so powerful to me and spoke to my heart and blessed my heart that I've just got to share it with you. Now, I heard Dr. Jerry Bynes, who is one of my heroes, one of my mentors, someone that I have always looked up to. Many of you may know 
Dr. Jerry Vines. He was the two-time president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and the Lord used him in a fantastic way. He's known as the Prince of Preachers for a reason. I mean, this brother can truly shell the corn, and the Lord really uses him um, in his ministry. He's, a, he's an amazing man of God. He said something at a pastor's conference years ago. I'll never forget. I've always, it's always kind of stuck with me. He said when the Lord first called him to preach, that he decided he was going to be original or nothing. What he meant by that is he's only going to preach what God gives him. He's not going to read commentaries. He's not going to listen to other sermons. He's not going to take notes on other people's outlines. He's going to be only his original thoughts or nothing. He said not long after he had made that statement to himself and to others, he figured out very quickly that if he was going to continue to be original, he'd surely be nothing. And so this morning, I don't apologize for sharing John MacArthur's outline. If it can help me share the truth of, of God plainer uh, in a more real way, then that's what I want to do. That's why I read commentaries. That's why I read books. That's why I listen to sermons. Anything that can help me share more effectively, I think, is necessary. Can you see me? Because really none of us are original. Sunday school teachers aren't original because if you were, you wouldn't have Sunday school books. Curriculum. Worship leaders aren't original and none of us have been original this morning as we've sang these worship songs. For if we were original, we'd have to write our own music every week. God uses people to speak to people. And maybe I hope and pray that when God sometimes does give me an original thought, maybe that can help you. Maybe you can use it. And guess what we're going to do? We're all just going to give God the glory because He's the only one worthy anyway. Any good thought, any original thought, any spirit-filled thought that I get comes from Him anyway. So let's just glorify Him. However, this is not an original outline of mine. But it was. It did speak to my heart. It did bless my soul. And I'm hoping this morning it will do the same for each and every one of you. I've titled it The Blessing of Borrowed Time. The Blessing of Borrowed Time. Let's look. Luke chapter 13, verse number, let's start with verse number 6. He spake, unto, uh, he spake also this parable, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came and sought fruit thereof and found none. Now watch what he says in the seventh verse. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I found none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it or fertilize it. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. The blessing of borrowed time. Let's pray together again. Father, again, we love you. Lord, we need you. We can do nothing without you. Speak truth to the ears that are open and ready to receive it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have you ever heard the phrase, living on borrowed time? I've heard it many times. I've heard it used in many different cases when speaking of someone who actually should have been dead, but is still alive. I remember years ago, I was a pastor at another church, and a lady went from our church um, to get a heart uh, test done. And, and she was doing, I, I forget what they're called, but where you get on the treadmill, and, and they uh, try to get your heart rate up and see if there's any blockage. 
that they might need to take care of. And while she was on that treadmill, she actually had a massive heart attack, what they call a little man. And, and when that took place, they took her straight back then and done emergency open heart surgery. And after the surgery, she told me that the doctor came in and said, look, you are living on borrowed time. I remember about 10, 11 years ago now, my aunt was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And when the doctor gave her the diagnosis, they said, look, you've got about four months to live. And that, that's uh, give or take some. You know, it, it, it's, it's pretty bad, the cancer that you have. And so they told her really just to be getting her affairs in order. And, and, and he said to her after um, she came through that, that's like I said, been 10, 11, maybe 12 years now that the Lord has blessed her with life. He said many times after he told her that, you're living on borrowed time. She should have been dead, but she's still alive. I read a story here the other day about a window washer in New York City. He was doing his job on a scaffold outside of an apartment building, and he fell off the scaffolding 47 floors and hit the ground. He survived, and when he did, it was said in the story that he's now living on borrowed time. He should have been dead. They... Those that I've spoken about this morning already, they should have been dead, but they have been given the blessing of borrowed time. You said, Rosa, what in the world has that got to do with us? Maybe you hadn't had open heart surgery, or maybe you haven't dealt uh, with cancer. Maybe you hadn't had taken a great fall. But I submit to you this morning, each and every one of us sitting here today is living on borrowed time. God has given us the blessing of borrowed time so that we might make the decision we need to make concerning Himself. If you go back and look there in verse number 5 of Luke chapter 13, Jesus tells us why He speaks this parable. He says, I tell you nay, but except you repent, ye shall all, everybody say all, likewise perish. What's Jesus saying? He's telling us we need to repent. And the time is now. That's the whole purpose of this message, this parable, this illustration, this earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's why he speaks it to them and also to us. Now, listen to me, folks. The Bible makes it plain that me, you, and everybody else is truly living on borrowed time the blessing that God has given us. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Do you remember the psalmist said that in sin did my mother conceive me? And what did he mean by that? Was he speaking that his mother had, that somehow his birth was illegitimate, that uh, in, in the practice of her doing what needed to be done for him to be conceived, that it was somehow, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is that, listen to me now, the conception itself brought about a sinful nature. Each and every one of us, at the moment we are conceived, at the moment uh, we begin to, to live inside the womb of our mothers, folks, we are born into sin. We are conceived even in sin, is what the Bible is teaching. Why is it that some babies die in the womb? Well, I'll tell you why. Because death is a product of sin. That baby has not willfully sinned yet. That baby has not made a decision to disobey God or not do what God said he should, shouldn't do or, 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 or should do or, or do what God said he shouldn't do. That baby 
baby has not had time to do any of that. Yet, infants still die. Babies still die in the mama's womb. Why? Because of sin. Sin that we are even conceived in. That sinful nature that we all receive at the moment of conception. Now, once a baby is born and starts making decisions to disobey God, not only are they sinners by nature, but then they become sinners by action. Can you say me? By choice. And that's where each and every one of us are. Listen, we are all not only sinners because of our very nature that we were born with, but all of us are sinners because we made the choice to rebel against God. So anytime any person, whether in the womb or outside of the womb, goes and faces death, listen, that death is justified. Why? Because we're all sinners with a sinful nature. We're all sinners, or at least all of us here, are sinners who have sinned by choice. We've chosen to rebel against God. A lot of people say, well, I can't, just can't believe how a loving God would allow people to die. Folks, that's not the question you need to be asking. That's not the statement you need to be making. I can't believe a holy God would allow us to even live. All of us, each and every one of us, deserve hell and condemnation. Me, you, and everybody else. The Bible says, Romans chapter 6, in verse number 23, that the very wages of sin is death. Because of that, because of that, death becomes an enemy to me, you, and everybody else. Can you say amen? Here, in Luke chapter 13, the first four verses, you'll find the story of how there was people who come to Jesus and began telling him how the Pilate soldiers had killed some Galileans. And they tell Jesus about a tower that had fell upon 12 people and killed them. And I think Jesus is really telling them, look, you are no different than they are. You too will one day face death. And listen, you are living on borrowed time just like those people you just told me about are living on borrowed time. I know that all of us have it fixed in our mind how one day we're going to live our life to the fullest and we're going to live to be the ripe old age of 98 years old and we're going to put our slippers under our bed one night and slip into our uh, 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 pajamas and, and get into, uh, up under the covers and lay down and pass off into eternity somehow like that. And that might be the case. You may live to the ripe old age of 98, but guess what? People don't only die at 98, sometimes they die at 58. Sometimes they die at 28. Sometimes they die at 18. Sometimes they die at 8. I'm just trying to say, we are all this morning living on the blessing. And it is a blessing of borrowed time. All it takes is for this heartbeat to be your last heartbeat until we all meet the Lord. The truth is, Jesus tells the parable to let us all know we have borrowed time. If you believe it, say amen. amen. Not only do I want you to see that we are all living on borrowed time, I also want you to see that God is patient because He is merciful. The very 
fact that we have been given borrowed time shows the mercy of God. It shows the patience of God. If you will, brother, please put for me on the screen Exodus 34. And I want us to see verse number 6. Watch what this says. Exodus chapter number 34 and verse number 6. And the Lord passed before him, meaning Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and in truth. How do you believe what verse 6 says? All right, two of us. How do you believe that God, listen to me now, is gracious, long-suffering, abundance in good, abundant in goodness and in truth? If you believe that, say amen to thee. Well, praise God. Listen, that is all great news. That God is merciful. God is gracious. God is long-suffering. And God is patient. Patient. Because of that truth that we find right here on the pages of Scripture, listen, God gives us the blessing of moral time to do what we need to do. But look at verse number 7. Don't forget this. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, that will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children upon the ch and upon the children's children under the third and the fourth generation. So what the Bible is teaching there is that yes, God is merciful. Yes, God is gracious. Yes, God is patient. But guess what? There will come a time when God's mercy and patience runs out. And we need to understand that. You must realize that. You say, oh, brothers, well, what about when the Bible says the mercy of the Lord endures forever? And the Bible does say that. Psalm 136. Matter of fact, it says it 21 times in that one psalm. That the mercy of God endures forever. But let me make this plain to you. Hear what I'm about to say. God's mercy has limits. God's mercy doesn't endure forever for everyone. You need to know this. We all got to get a hold of this. Let me tell you why I say that. Because the Bible says, Psalm 103, verses 17 and 18. Psalm 103, verse 17. Watch what the Bible teaches there. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that what? That fear Him. That reverence Him. Let me give you a good test of whether or not you fear the Lord. How do you live your life? What decisions and choices do you make on a day-to-day -day basis? The test is not about what comes out of your mouth, what you say. The true test is what you do, what I do. If we truly fear Him, reverence Him, stand in awe of Him, realize, he, realize that He has complete authority over the heavens and earth. If we truly love Him, Jesus said it like this, If you love me, keep my commandments. Do what I say. 
The Bible is teaching in Psalm 103 that God does show mercy from everlasting to everlasting. But that mercy comes upon those who fear Him. Who have turned from their sin and turned to Him. Who have chosen to trust in Him and please Him with their life. Yes, God is merciful. Yes, God is gracious. Yes, God is patient. But that patience, that mercy, and that grace has limits. It's only everlasting to those who fear Him, who love Him, who serve Him, who truly know Him. The borrowed time we have, listen to me now, is just that. Sometime. Sometime. I hope it's enough time. For all of us. Let me tell you why. God's patience has a purpose. Are you hearing me? Second Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9. Love this verse. I'm so very thankful for this verse. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Now, I don't have time to go back into it this morning. But in the book of 2 Peter, you'll remember this from when we studied First and 2 Peter in our Wednesday night Bible study. Most of 2 Peter talks about the coming day of judgment. And what God has promised, that He's actually going to set right what Satan and sin has made wrong. How that God is going to justly judge planet earth and everybody in it. And a lot of the people that Peter was writing to in this epistle, uh, they were feeling, well, if God's made this promise, why ain't He doing it? Why ain't He making it right? Because they, as Christians, as Christ followers, were going through immense persecution. They were being imprisoned, tortured, losing everything they had. Their families were undergoing great persecution. And their thought process were, it was if God is going to set right what sin and Satan has made wrong, if God is going to come back and justly judge those who are against Him and against His truth and against His children, if God's going to do that, then why He already done it? And Peter makes this statement by inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. He says, the Lord is not slack. Concerning his promises, some men count slackness, but his long suffering to what? Usward. To me and to you. He's showing us patience, thereby, he's giving us some borrowed time. Time to get right what's wrong. Time to repent and turn to him. Time to trust in Jesus and be saved. Why? Because he's not willing that any should perish. There is not one person on planet earth today or one person that will ever be on planet earth. There is not one human being that God wants to perish. Why? Because 2 Peter 3 and 9 says it's not His will that any perish. Praise Jesus. 
I deserve to perish. I deserve condemnation. Because I'm born with a sinful nature. Because I've chosen to disobey God and rebel against Him. But I am thankful it was not God's will that I perish, but that I be saved. And it's God's will that you be saved. That you are made right with Him. That you miss hell and gain heaven. It's God's will that you become a part of His family being born again in Christ. That's what God wants. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's patience has a purpose. And that purpose is your salvation, my salvation. That's why God waits. That's why He gives us time. But the truth is, we never know when that borrowed time will end. That's what we got to realize. Go back to Luke chapter 13. Verse 6, Jesus said, A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. I want to speak just a moment about the vineyard and what that means. The vineyard was a place that yielded the best crops. And there was a reason for that. It was in the vineyard that they fertilized and watered and cultivated the soil. So the vineyard was a perfect place to plant a fruit tree because the soil had been cultivated, because the soil had been fertilized, because the soil got good water, then the fruit tree was going to be fruitful. Then the Bible says, after the tree had been planted in the vineyard, he came and sought fruit thereon and found nothing. You remember what Jesus said when speaking of those who were true, truly followers of him, truly believers in him and those who are false teachers, he said, you'll know a tree by what? The fruit it bears. And this goes right along with what he's saying right here in Luke 13. When he looked upon the tree and there was no fruit, he saw that there was no life. Because how many of you know, all in the world, fruit is, is life being pressed out through the branch. That's it. See, the point is this. There are a lot of people who sits in good watering grounds where the soil is being cultivated. Amen? Where the soil is being fertilized. They sit in services just like this or in Sunday school and, and they go through worship times of worship where they sing about the grace of God and just like this brother has come before us this morning and he sang his heart out about the cross and the blood that was shed for us. And we sang this morning before Sunday school that Jesus paid it all. And we hear these beautiful songs, this truth that is being sung week in and week out. And then you go to a Sunday school class and you get a hold of the truth of the Word of God. And you hear what God is saying to you through His living Word. And then we sit in services like this in time of worship. 
And I'm doing my best by the power of the Holy Spirit to give you the whole counsel of the Word of God right here this morning from Luke 13. And we hear all of this in good soil that's being fertilized and watered, cultivated. Yet Jesus said it's possible to be in that place and still not have life. There was no fruit. Fruit is not how many times you come to church a week. Nothing wrong with coming to church. I am glad you are in church this morning. We're going to have church this evening. We'll have church Wednesday night. Come back and be with us. I'm thankful you see the importance of coming to church. But coming to church does not mean you're a Christian. It does not make you a Christian. I heard one pastor say it like this. He said that being in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. He's right. Now we'll say this. If you are a car, you'll look a whole lot better after about 10 or 15 years if you've been kept in a garage. Same thing with a Christian. If you are a Christian, you're going to look a whole lot more like Jesus if you spent time in church. Can you say me? No doubt about it. However, just coming to church cannot, will not make you a Christian. Putting money in the offering plate. That's not fruit. That's not evidence of life. Even though I'm thankful, people choose to do that. What I'm trying to say to you is fruit is the life of Christ, again, being pressed out through that branch. Galatians 5.22 says that if you are truly a child of God and the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, there's going to be some evidence. There's going to be some love. Go love people. Let me tell you what bothers me. That a whole lot of people that I know who claim to follow Jesus are some of the most hateful, cantankerous people I've ever been around in my life. That's a problem. If there is no love, how can you claim to know Jesus? Ill-mannered, rude, downright mean. And I believe here in Galatians 5.22, when he starts off with love, he does it for a reason. And listen, he wants us to know that all these other fruits flow from a heart filled with love. <laughs> love that is shed abroad into the heart of every believer by the Holy Spirit, according to Romans 5.5. 5. He says that we, a spirit is, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance against such there is no law. There's going to be fruit if you truly have life. And Jesus said this uh, fig tree was in a place where it should have been bearing fruit. 
It was in a place where the soil was watered and cultivated and fertilized. Yet, there was no evidence of life whatsoever on its branches. Go to the next verse. Watch this. Luke 13, verse number 7. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. Cut it down. It's taken up place in the ground where other trees could be bearing fruit, but it's not. Get rid of it. Watch what happens. Verse 8. And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, and I shall dig about it and dung it. He said, give it one more chance. What I'll do, I'll go in and I'll cultivate the earth again around this tree. I'll break up the soil. That way the water can get through. And when I break up the soil, I'll take some fertilizer and I'll spread it where I've, where I've dug up the soil. And maybe, just maybe, in a year or so, after some time, maybe it'll start bearing fruit again. Now, how many of you know? This fig tree, in that moment, began living on borrowed time. Just like all of us are living on borrowed time. However, verse 9, and if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. God has given you time to make the decision to trust in Him. To do what John the Baptist said, bear fruits, meet for repentance. However, there's coming a time when all of us will be cut down. Can you see here? This morning, I'm not trying to scare you. Well, I don't even want to say that. The truth is, if you don't know Christ this morning, I hope you're terrified. I hope you are trembling on the inside with fear and can't control it. I hope you're realizing what a dangerous game you play by not doing what you know God is leading you to do. Because you're playing with your own eternity. You are one heartbeat away. From dying and going to a devil's hell where the Bible says the flame is never quenched and the worm dies not. Trust in Jesus now. Borrowed time. It's not, it's sometime. We don't know how much. But we do know there's coming a time when each and every one of us will stand before our Heavenly Father. Amen? Amen. That's why Jesus said, verse number five, again, except you repent, 
Except you turn from your sin and turn to me. Except you trust in me. You shall all likewise perish. Think about what was going on. The people he was preaching to had heard about the folks who had been killed by Pilate soldiers. They had heard about the ones who had died because the tower fell on us alone. I think what he was wanting them to think about, what he's wanting us to think about, the same thing could happen to you and to me. You may be a picture of health. Perfect blood pressure, low cholesterol. You might can run 15 miles. You might can do 180 push-ups. You may be, again, in perfect health, but guess what? If you pull out in this road this evening and an 18-wheeler runs over, it don't matter how many push-ups you can do. Jesus is telling them there was a calamity that happened with the soldiers killing those folks with the tower falling. Their time ran out. Ours can too. This is the warning. Because that's really what this parable is. It's a warning of the judgment of God that's coming to all who reject Him. Everybody stand here this morning. Today, I'm not asking you if you're a good person. I'm not asking if you come to church. I'm not asking if you preach the sermon or teach the class or hold a position. I'm not asking any of that. Because none of that matters when we're talking about your own personal salvation. What matters is do you know there's been a time in your life when God the Holy Spirit convicted your heart and you came to the place where you trusted fully and the finished work of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. Where you repented, you turned from your old life and turned toward Christ. Has that, is that true for you? If not, heed the warning. You too are living on borrowed time. But I can tell you this. Jesus is still in the saving business. The same Jesus who has saved me by His grace and mercy is the same Jesus who will save you this morning if you'll trust Him. Hell is real. Heaven is too. You can miss hell and gain heaven in Christ. You can have eternal life today if you choose to trust in Him. Choose wisely. Choose wisely.